Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. Our lead story this morning is about a new system that could break the logjam at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. The boss of that system, Andrea Munson, will have a report later in the broadcast, and joining her will be healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. In other news, CMS last week posted the 2020 proposed rule for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. One of the nation's foremost IRF authorities, Angela Phillips, is standing by with the details. In technology news, Rack Monitor investigator reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach will have a report on robotic surgery. Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckler returns with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. We have a problem in America. We spend way too much money on health care, and the outcomes we get are not great. But I'm pretty now darn tired of hearing about this movement from volume to value. You know what that movement really is? It's an uncontrolled scientific experiment with unsuspecting people as the participants. The HCAP survey was forced on hospitals about 10 years ago, and it directly contributed to the opioid epidemic. Was it proven to improve outcomes before it was instituted? Nope. Did CMS ever admit their role in the opioid epidemic? Well, they finally did remove pain management questions from surveys, so that's enough of an admission of guilt for me. Well, recently, two other experimental programs on human beings were proven to be ineffective. First, a study looked at employee wellness programs published recently. I'm sure many of you have these programs. I know I do. I get a discount on my health insurance if I see my doctor, get some blood tests done, and allow a nurse to call me up and review the results. In the study, they found that although wellness programs, excuse me, they found that the wellness programs had no effect at all on employee wellness or health. And probably more importantly to the employer who funded the wellness program, it had no effect at all on healthcare spending. To steal from David Glazer, this study should be read while playing Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, since that's what the employers got for their money, nothing. The next report looks at the recent change in readmission penalties imposed by CMS when they started adjusting for socioeconomic status. When the program for readmissions was established in 2012, the penalties were based solely on medical factors. They looked at readmissions expected versus observed. Using incomprehensible formula, they calculated that, and then they applied a penalty for the next three years if the hospital exceeded their expected rate of readmissions. Starting in 2019, the percentage of dual-eligible Medicare-Medicaid patients is used as a surrogate for socioeconomic factors and is added to the formula. In this report that was just published found that hospitals with a high percentage of dual-eligible patients had their penalties reduced by over $28 million, an average of about $500,000 per 
per hospital. And for a safety net hospital, that's a whole lot of money. Now the question, of course, is will CMS admit that they've been unfairly penalizing hospitals for the last six years and pay back all the money that they collected? That's unlikely. But hopefully CMS will do more, start looking at all of the social determinants of health and making adjustments for those and stop taking money away from the hospitals that need it the most. Now I've talked before about medical reversals, things like niacin or the swan scan catheter that we thought worked but actually didn't. Maybe it's time to step back with some of these quality initiatives and test them before we adopt them. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics of the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. And good morning, Nancy. Nancy, you have been missed. Welcome back. Thank you, Chuck. A few weeks ago, I attended the Healthcare Compliance Association Compliance Institute and, of course, had a chance to connect with loyal listeners of Monitor Monday, particularly therapy providers. The top question on everyone's mind is targeted probe and educate. Several of the MACs are active with therapy providers right now, and I frequently have reported on this show on the Novitas TPE for therapy, which has completed two rounds and has published very favorable results of both rounds in the JH and JL jurisdictions. Other MACs are in the process of probing therapy right now, and I'd like to kind of preview a series on that. Today, I'll start with high utilizer compared to your peers. Under that category of, quote, your statistics are in the top, let's just say 10%, a provider reported two probes to me for aquatic therapy, and that's a good topic today. Well, of course, if you have a therapy pool in your clinic, it's likely you're going to use the pool and bill for aquatic therapy. This often has proved to be a problematic code for therapy practices when under review, and the risk is that there is more than one patient in the pool, and they're all billed aquatic therapy as if it was provided one-on-one, -on -one, when in fact it was provided in a group fashion, they're Either the group therapy code should have been used or the one-on-one -on -one time should have been apportioned appropriately to each patient as CMS has instructed in their guidance in the 11 PTOT billing scenarios document. In my early therapy career, I spent most of the day in the pool at a spinal cord injury rehab hospital. I'm a huge proponent of the benefits of aquatic therapy. For therapy providers that have a pool or use a community-based pool, I recommend aquatic therapy be on your clinic's auditing and monitoring program. Your monitoring program will assist in oversight of the use of the code, utilization, therapist providing therapy, patients receiving therapy, and an auditing program should include parameters for medical necessity, plan of care components to indicate the use of aquatic and progression to land-based exercises, and verification that the therapy was provided one-on-one -on -one or appropriately apportioned. So that's my story on aquatic therapy. Emily, can you please pull up the poll, which today is sponsored by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. So let's talk about the ALJ appeals process that we think is pretty clogged up. Do you have appeals pending at Omaha for less than a year? Check number one. Check number two if you're pending for over one year. Check number three if you're pending for over two years. Check number four if you're pending for over three years. And if you have no appeals pending at Omaha, check number five. Chuck will be back later in the program to find out how we're doing with appeals at Omaha. 
Very good. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates, and as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Angela Phillips, Edward Roach, Andrew Walkland, or our special guest from the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals, Andrea Munson. This is Monday, it's April the 22nd, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important news from Rack University about self-denials and rebilling. Recent and increased two midnight audits by the QIOs mean your facility could be at risk if you are an outlier. Don't miss this opportunity to operationalize the self-denial and rebuild process to create a win-win-win situation for your facility, your staff, and even the patients. During an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast this Thursday, Dr. Alvin Gore and Kathy Charlberg will clear up the confusion about one midnight stays and how to properly status these patients. Plan to attend Medicare Self-Denial Rebilling this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, use the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. And remember, save $40 when you register by entering the coupon code MONDAY. Thanks, Clark. And a reminder that the Auditor Monitor will be available at the Rack University Bookstore next week. So subscribe now. And when you do, you're going to receive a concise, must-read analysis of third-party auditors. It's a resource intended to save you and your facility time and money. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So current events can often provide a useful tool for understanding that. And the Mueller Report's witness tampering discussion offers insight into how instinctive reactions to an investigation can prompt prosecution. So page 10 of volume 2 discusses 18 U.S.C. section 1512, which makes it a crime to knowingly, corruptly persuade another person with an intent to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of any person in in an official proceeding, or to hinder, delay, or prevent communication to a law enforcement officer of information relating to the commission or possible commission of a federal offense. Now, it's no surprise that asking someone to lie to a government investigator is witness tampering. But the law also covers urging a witness to recall a fact that the witness did not know, even if the fact was actually true. If you think something happened one way and someone else thinks they didn't, the act of discussing it can wind up being a felony. Similarly, telling a witness not to cooperate with law enforcement can violate the law. Mueller cites the case of United States versus Schatz, where a lawyer who was under investigation told his secretary that as long as she didn't talk to the FBI, she would, quote, not be bothered, unquote. Now, the government asserted that that statement could be construed as a threat. The defendant argued he was merely saying that it's messy to speak with the government. The court ultimately felt that the jury could determine that the lawyer had acted with a specific intent to undermine the integrity of truth-seeking with the statement. So he was convicted of witness tampering. But you don't need to threaten to be guilty of witness tampering. Harassment that was just pestering someone can be enough. The lesson here is you want to refrain from instructing your staff not to interact with the government. Now, this is nuanced. You want your staff to know that they're not required to talk to investigators, though I should note that some licensed professionals must talk with their licensing boards. 
Um, but with that exception, you're not required to speak to the government. But when explaining the right to remain silent, you need to do so the right way. Compliance training should tell employees that they have the right to talk to the government, while also emphasizing that they have the right to refuse. Make clear that the decision belongs to the employee. It's entirely appropriate to help the employee understand that there are significant risks in talking to the government as long as you do it very carefully. As soon as you say something like, it's easier for everyone if you don't talk to the government, you might find yourself in the crosshairs. If you'd like more information on strategies for training staff on how to interact with government officials, drop me an email. Now, I've always been a huge fan of Natalie Merchant and the 10,000 Maniacs. But make sure if you play Don't Talk as a soundtrack in the office, you tweak it to You Can Talk, but you don't have to. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. Last week, CMS posted the 2020 proposed rule for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. Here now to report that developing story is Angela Phillips. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, and thanks, Chuck. After last week's broadcast, I got a few queries about whether I thought there would be any delays in the implementation of this transition from using FIM to quality indicators in the payment model. And although my response was that there's no indication that would happen, uh, as we've been collecting that same data for several years, we simply never know. However, on April 17th, CMS issued a proposed rule for IRF PPS for fiscal year 2020 that confirmed that the transition is still planned. So get prepared. The proposed rule should appear in the Federal Register on April 29th, and overall there are no big surprises. Still, I'd like to give our listeners some highlights as to what to expect. From a payment perspective, there are some updates. There's a proposed overall 2.5% increase factor that includes a market basket estimate of plus 3% minus a 0.5% productivity adjustment, pretty consistent with what we've seen over the last few years. We also will see the expected case mix group revisions that are required to remove the FIM and use quality indicator data for classification. There are also some updates related to quality measures. There are two proposed additional quality measures, both of which relate to medication reconciliation, so these will not be terribly burdensome for ERS. One of those relates to the transfer of health information to the follow-up provider, and the second to the transfer of health information to the patient. There's a proposed adoption of a number of standardized patient assessment data elements, a new acronym for us called SPADES, S-P-A-D-E, and these added data elements will assess cognitive function, mental status, special services patients require, treatments and intervention, medical conditions and comorbids, impairments, and social determinants of health that include race, preferred language, interpreter services, health literacy, transportation, and social isolation. There are also updates to the discharge to community QRP measure and a requirement that we collect ERFPI data on all patients regardless of payer. 
And finally, there are provisions to remove uh, the published list of compliant ERFs from the QRP website and provisions to amend the regulations to clarify that the determination as to whether a physician qualifies as a rehab physician is now made by the IRF. As always, we encourage you to comment on the rule. Comments will be taken until June 17th. And we'll keep everyone here updated as the rule is modified and finalized and also of the impact of the rule. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is one of this country's foremost IRF authorities. Angie is president of Image and Associates. Thanks again. In technology news, we turn to Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach with the Roach Report. Good morning, Ed. A U.S. Civil War song, Soldier's Joy. 25 cents for whiskey, 25 cents for beer, 25 cents for morphine. Get me out of here. A patient waiting for a hacksaw to cut off the leg. 1846, Mass General Hospital. First surgery with anesthesia. 1867, Lister introduces antiseptics. 1885, appendectomy. 1893, heart surgery. 1905, cornea transplant. 1917, plastic surgery. 1950, organ transplant. 53, heart-lung bypass. 57, heart transplant. Then 1975, first laparoscopic surgery. Minimally invasive. 1985, first robotic surgery. Then year 2000, the Da Vinci robotic surgical system. The surgeon sits in a type of cockpit. Two actuators control robotic arms. A camera magnifies the images the surgeon sees nerves and capillaries. Newer systems have a single point of entry containing three or four instruments, including a camera. It is possible to repair a valve inside a beating heart. Dyes and light filters allow the surgeon to see cancer glowing, even if hidden beneath the surface. Newer robots allow 3D high-definition vision and force feedback for the surgeon. Virtual incision makes a small robot operating entirely inside the body. How do we measure economic benefits? Mean cost of care, net profit, operating room time, length of hospital stay. Also many cost variables, robot cost, surgery disposables, anesthesia, medication. What are the results? For a prostatectomy, 7% better procedure success Hospital stay drops from 2.7 to one day. For cardiac surgery, hospital stay cut from 8.2 to 4.6 days. Blood transfusions cut from 57% to seven. Patients return to work in less time. There are favorable economics also for hysterectomy and nephrectomy. In general, the economics of robotic surgery are more favorable for the patient and surgeon than for the hospital. More supplies are used. A large capital investment is needed for the robot, but for the patient, the trauma of surgery is lessened. They recover faster. Life is better. And that is today's good news. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Business Intelligence for Barraclude LLC, New York.
As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there might be a new tool designed to break up the logjam of appeals at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Reporting our lead story this morning is Andrea Munson. Andrea joined Omaha in 2010, and she serves as the Division of Information Management and Systems Director. She has oversight of Omaha IT initiatives, including eCAPE. She was with the Social Security Administration from 2001 to 2010, and she worked on their IT initiative. So good morning, Andrea. Welcome to Monitor Monday. So bring us up to date on eCAPE. Good morning, Chuck. For today's broadcast, my plan is to touch briefly on the backlog and then delve into OMHA's Electronic Case Adjudication and Processing Environment Project, otherwise known as eCAPE. So we have made tremendous progress since the height of our backlog, and as of December 31st, 2018, we have reduced the number of pending appeals to approximately 380,000. In order to get where we are today, a multi-prong approach was implemented to tackle the appeals backlog, backlog, including nearly doubling OMHA's adjudicatory capacity with the opening of four new field offices and one satellite offices, partnering with CMS on settlement initiatives, and the development of an OMHA standardized business process, in addition to implementing legislative reforms, and that's just to name a few. So eCAPE supports these strategies in a more efficient and automated way. So what is eCAPE? So OMHA has contracted with CACI Federal to build, operate, and maintain eCAPE as a software as a service. Micropact is the CACA subcontractor that provides the host environment for eCAPE. eCAPE is based on Micropact's IntelliTrack system, a web-based commercial off-the-shelf product. eCAPE is hosted on Micropact's hosting facility. So um, I'm going to go into a little bit what eCAPE is and the different components. So eCAPE provides OMHA with an electronic case workflow, content management, the electronic folder, correspondence generation. It allows us to exhibit electronically, scheduling, decision generation, and it also provides for an appellant public portal, which allows our appellant community to file an appeal online, um, upload electronic documents, and also check status. Right now, it's currently being used by a limited number of individuals, appellants, and we plan on expanding that soon. Um, ECAPE also provides us with management, information, and reporting, and data analytics. In addition, ECAPE links to uh, um, uh, CMS's uh, Medicare appeal system and um, through web services. So that allows us at the beginning of the appeal process to go ahead and pull data and documents um, from MOS. And then at the end of the process, we push documents and data back to MOS. And just as a note, um, CMS's uh, Medicare appeal system will continue to remain the system of record for the appeals process. So those web services are really key to allow us to get all the information we need for MOS to process our appeals um, at level three. And then also when we're finished, um, sending it all back to make sure that system, that, that record is complete. So I'm going to go a little bit into our release schedule, um, which um, the first release occurred April 2017, and the highlights of this release included the ability to receipt all appeals in to central operations, um, and that's all requests for hearings electron um, electronically. And again, that was April 2017, and it also provided us with the first phase of the appellant public portal. Um, as I briefly mentioned before, this allows 
um, us to file uh, appeals electronically. Um, the next release uh, was adjudication, and because um, of the large release, we broke that into three separate releases, um, with the final release occurring just um, about five months ago, um, November 30th, 2018, and this finalized all the uh, uh, adjudic adjudicatory functionality. Um, a rollout schedule for eCAPE, um, we're going to roll out to all offices by the end of the fiscal year. So by September 30th, eCAPE will be live in all of our field offices. And then um, our next step is to turn to enhancements. Um, we're going to look at enhancing and um, increasing, expanding the use of the Appellant Public Portal. Um, and then we're also going to be collecting um, user requests um, for further uh, updates and enhancements. Um, so um, we're looking forward with working with the appellant community to identify what some of those um, enhancements for the appellant public portal should be. Thanks, Andrew, very much. That was Andrew Munson. Andrew is the Director of Division Information Management at Systems in Omaha. And now for context and perspective on eCAPE is prominent healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for the opportunity to give this perspective. Andrew, I think that's really significant information that we're looking at this system up and running by September 30th of uh, this year. And so folks are going to have to uh, understand it and learn how to use it. Uh, just as a reminder, right now we do have certainly some forms of electronic system. We have the, um, uh, the uh, AASIS system, the Appeal Status um, Information System, where you can look at assigned cases. Uh, if they've been assigned to a judge, if the judge is in deliberation, if they've been closed for being dismissed or favorable ruling or remanded or uh, removed to the appeals council or an unfavorable ruling, uh, you can tell if cases have been uh, combined, uh, received, or reopened. So there is a lot of information that can be um, uh, obtained at this time. But as I look at the new system and think of some of the practical issues uh, that come up now and how they may be handled. So for example, we have right now, and there's some reference to eCAPE in the uh, Omaha uh, case uh, manual uh, that we also often reference, uh, chapter nine. But uh, right now when we look at receipt, we look at the receipt by a business day at 4.30 uh, for electronically right now as it reflects in the manual, uh, receipt can be received by 11.59 that day. So anytime uh, before uh, the day's out. One of the issues that we deal with is uh, looking at either late filing or issues of receipt of uh, notices. And there's a... Um, a presumption now that you get 60 days plus five days for mailing so that you essentially get uh, 65 uh, days. And it kind of states, unless it's uh, clear otherwise, I'm wondering how eCAPE will play into that because we don't have any time for mailing if we're going to be held uh, strictly to the 60 days. Uh, also, one of the issues we deal with now is when notice has been sent to the um, wrong location or it had not been received by the provider and we're looking for relief, we have one level of appeal, but we often go 
uh, to CMS uh, to get relief. So how will those issues be addressed electronically? Will the notices also be provided electronically with eCape? And what happens when it goes into your spam filter uh, and you don't see it? This is uh, not an uh, unusual uh, issue. Um, I would also say still re remember when you file your appeal, uh, we advocate minimalist filings because at the ALJ level, you're required to give notice to the beneficiary and um, even for, for HIPAA and other reasons, you want to uh, put a little, that's going to have to be a, a paper notice at this time. And that's going to, uh, you want to keep that minimal uh, so uh, you don't have to send too much information. Uh, finally, I, I would just close by saying there is some reference to eCAPE in uh, Chapter 9 uh, with regard to um, how uh, notices are, are being provided and received, uh, but I'm sure that'll be significantly updated, and it's exciting that this uh, new process is rolling out. With that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was Andrew Walker. Drew is the managing partner of Walker Associates. Nancy, let's take a look at the poll. Once again, it's brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. For our listeners today regarding appeals pending at Omaha for less than a year, we have 0%. For appeals pending at Omaha for over a year, 8%. For over two years, 12%. For over three years, 45%. And 33% have no appeals at Omaha. We did get a note from Sandra, one of our longtime listeners, saying they took the settlement dollars for each case pending at Omaha, so they no longer have any. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And I want to thank our special guests as well, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Angela Phillips, Ed Roach, Andrew Walkland, our special guest, Andrea Munson from Omaha. We thank you very much for starting off your week with us this morning. And we look forward to you being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.